Well, whether you are single or married, I think you would agree that watching a Christian man and a Christian woman enter into a covenant of marriage is a joyous and momentous occasion, not only for the couple, but for everybody watching, too. Often you have the rehearsal dinner. You got the exciting, the excitement, nerves, so to speak. You got all the details of the ceremony that's going to happen the next day and the day of. You got the process. You got the order of service. You got the picking of the songs. You got the scripture reading. You have the vows and the sermon, even, which speaks of Christ's sacrifice on the cross as a testament of God's covenant love to his church. You have the giving of rings. You have the pronouncement that they are now husband and wife to the death. And then even after the ceremony, you have oftentimes a celebration, celebration meal as people gather together and say wonderful things about the bride and the groom and just have a good time all around. It's a great time. As we ourselves have experienced this summer with David and Sharon's wedding and Danny and Alyssa's wedding. And in today's passage from Exodus chapter 23 and 24, I invite you to turn there with me now. It's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 23, Exodus 24. We are invited to see God and Israel enter into another covenant. And we get the opportunity to stand afar and to watch and see God and Israel go through this ceremony, make vows. And we see here in the ceremony the centrality of a sacrifice. We continue our sermon series through the book of Exodus. And once again, our passage is Exodus 23 to 24, specifically 23:20 to 24:11. If you're taking notes, we have three points today. Number one, God pledges to fulfill his promises. God pledges to fulfill his promises. Number two, God requires covenant obedience. God requires covenant obedience. And then number three, the sealing of the covenant. The sealing of a covenant. Let's look, number one, at God's pledge to fulfill his promises. And to help us understand the passage where we are, it helps us to review uh, where we've come from in the book of Exodus at this point in time. Uh, God has already gathered his people. He delivered the descendants of Abraham, that is the Hebrew people, out of slavery from Pharaoh. We saw this in, in chapters 1 through 18, the first half of the book. And there we saw that God brought plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt. This was a demonstration of his power over the supposed gods of Egypt. Even Pharaoh was seen to be a god. And then he, uh, the climax of those events is that he splits the Red Sea. Israel walks on dry land. And then as Pharaoh and his chariots pursue him, God covers them in the waters that he parted. Chapter 19, we have the start of the second section of the book of Exodus. And here God is concerned with giving his people his law. So first he gathered them, he drew them out of slavery, brought them to Mount Sinai, and then here he's concerned with giving them his laws, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks. And the reason why he does this, actually turn over to Exodus 19. You see why God is doing all of this. 19 verse 5. Actually, let's start at verse 4. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did, that is the Lord, the Lord over everything, the sovereign God over even the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There's relationship language, covenant language. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And he goes on to say, go ahead and tell all these things to Israel, my delivered people. But you see there is purpose there. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and then finally a holy nation. 
He has chosen these particular people, and so now he's helping them live according to his desires by giving them his law. But just as uh, Exodus is about God gathering his people out of slavery, so God is concerned to bring them into a land, the land of Canaan. And this, uh, we've seen, this is actually what kicks off the book of Exodus. Now flip over to Exodus chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles open, we do a lot of flipping here, so that'd be good. Um, Flip over to Exodus chapter 3 and look at 7 to 9. You see here the concern that God has to bring his people into a land. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So there you see God's concern at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. Now what we see God doing in Exodus is what God was already doing in Genesis. God had given Abraham three promises. I'm going to make you into a people. They already are a people. God has fulfilled that promise. He's going to continue doing that. He says, I'm also going to give you a land. That's promise number two. And then he says, one from your line will be a blessing to the world, which is fulfilled in Jesus. These are, in fact, God's covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants who walk in the same footsteps of faith in the Lord. So go back to Exodus 23. What we see in Exodus 23, after the book of the covenant is given, here God is just picking up what he has already promised to do all the way back in Exodus. Oh, sorry, all the way back in Genesis. So he is pledging to fulfill his promises, bring them into a land that he had already promised them. And what I want to highlight is God's determination to fulfill his covenant promises. God's determination to fulfill his covenant promises. First, he, we see his determination by him sending an angel ahead of the people. Look there, 23.3. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Sorry, this is 23.20. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. We've seen this angel before. When Israel was ushered out of Egypt, they were protected by a pillar of cloud by day, so the Egyptians couldn't see them, and then a pillar of fire by night, so they would know their way forward. Uh, And then also in 14.9, it was also the Lord's angel who was guarding them. Now, some people think that this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Others think that this is simply an angel. So no matter where people land, the Israelites nevertheless would have listened to this angel as if it were the Lord himself. So this is presence here. Remember, God is present with his people, and so he's showing his presence by giving this angel to the people that, uh, that they might listen to him and that they might be protected. Look there in verse 22. What the angel says is what the Lord says. And according to verse 23, this is my angel, God says. So they are to listen to him as if if, uh, the angel were the Lord. And this angel would be to, he would go before the people. He would be guarding them, protecting them, bringing them into this land. And this is God delivering and preserving. But not only does God send an angel as, uh, as we see him fulfilling his determination to fulfill his promises. He also promises to send the people out. He sends an angel, and that angel is going to send the people out. Look there in verse 27. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the, all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. Basically, God's terror is going to run ahead of them, 
and the people are going to turn tail and flee. Uh, this just means that the people of the land are going to be terrified. And what's interesting, if you guys like biblical prophecy, which, you know, if you're a Christian, I think you should, you actually see a fulfillment in Joshua uh, chapters, uh, chapter 9. So flip over to the right four books. Flip over to the right four books and you see Joshua. And uh, as the story goes on, Joshua is the one who is chosen to lead God's people into the land. And you see here in chapter 9 that Israelite spies are sent into the land, a pagan city of Jericho. And they're helped by a pagan woman, Rahab. And the spies eventually find lodging on Rahab's roof, the roof of her building. And this uh, this is what it says here. 8 to 11 of chapter 9. Before the man that is a spy lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know. Now this is a pagan woman here. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. So the question is why? Why is it that she knows here this pagan woman? It says, for... We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to those other kings of the other lands. The point there is that the people fear the Lord. The same Lord who dried up the sea at that point in time, you know, decade, generation earlier, is the same God who is over these people, guiding these particular people, directing these particular people. Guarding them, fighting for them. That's why Rahab the pagan understood the fear of the Lord and, that, and by God's grace was driven towards uh, following this God. But unfortunately, by, uh, by and large, the majority of the people of the land would run away. They would flee and they would go on hating God. In Exodus 23, verses 22 to 23, God simply promises Israel, I will be an adversary to your adversaries. I will be an enemy to Israel's enemies. And he says there that he would utterly blot them out and be destroyed. They would be destroyed. Now some people read of this judgment and think, man, this is harsh. He's going to utterly blot them out. And I can understand this gut reaction of God blotting people out, wiping them, uh, wiping their names from the face of the earth, as it were, were. But this, again, is where we need to understand Exodus 23 in light of what's happened before in Genesis. If we just think, like, oh, he's going to destroy innocent people? This is harsh. This is even unjust. And then we go on to say, well, then God must be unjust. Well, that would make sense if, big if, capital letters if, there were actually innocent people. According to the Bible, though, there are no innocent people. Now, that doesn't mean that we are all as bad as we could be, but there, in fact, there's no one innocent before an all-righteous God. The Bible says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. That's what the book of Romans says. And so, friends, if you have lusted in your hearts, if you have cursed in, on your mouths, if you have indeed hated or even coveted your neighbor's things, friend, that is your unrighteousness showing. It's just evidence that you and me too, every person here, whether they call themselves Christian or not, are in fact sinful. All have rebelled against our maker and made ourselves gods. We do what we want. We seek to bring ourselves glory. We are glory thieves. All people have earned for themselves a just punishment and earned this 
judgment from God for rebelling against him. This now includes the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Friends, believe it or not, actually, we see God's patience here in his judgment. Why is it? Well, because, friends, God actually foretold to Abraham 550 years earlier that God would eventually bring judgment on the Amorites. Now, the Amorites stand for all of the people of Canaan. The Amorites were the head tribe there. But the Amorites, he told Abraham in Genesis, again, 550 years earlier, that God, he said, he told Abraham, you're going you're gonna to pause a little bit. And after 400 plus years, <clears throat> eventually you will go into the land. Why is it? Why 400 years? Why wait that long? He says there because... The Amorites' wickedness was not yet complete. He knew the Amorites were wicked, but yet he held off hundreds of years. Saying, no, in due time, there will come a time. So we see God's patience here. And friends, if we are living and breathing here today, and we know ourselves to be sinful, just as the Bible says, Lord, the very, the very fact that God has not judged us is evidence of his patience. And so he calls all right now, here, if you hear my voice, to turn from your sins and believe. And know this righteous God and actually receive Jesus Christ's righteousness upon you by turning and believing upon him. So we've seen God's determination in sending the angel. We've seen God's determination in sending the people out. Uh, we also see God's determination as he reaffirms his promise to give them the land. Uh, just imagine how rousing this promise would have been. Look there in verse 31 when the, the people hear these things. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, basically from Egypt, up through the Mediterranean land, the coastal land, and then to the, to the wilderness, the, the, the Euphrates River. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. It's the same land that's described actually in Genesis chapter 15, just using slightly different descriptions. From the border of Egypt, that is the Red Sea, through the Sea of the Philistines, that is the Mediterranean, all the way north to the Euphrates River. This was a land of promise. The land there in 23.2, it says the land that I have prepared for you already, past tense. He set it aside. Well, not only we see God's determination to bring people into a land, he, we continue to see God's mind as he wants to continue to let this people flourish. He's developing... These people continues to develop them into a nation, a great people, a multitude even. So look there at 23. This is the second way that God is concerned here. It's not only land, it's also the people. He says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to, those God, to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Now we get this, 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. You hear what he's getting at there? It's not health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. This is health and survival because he's making his people into a multitude. He's fulfilling particular promises that's what it means there when none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. It means they're going to be a multitude. He already promised that they'd be like the stars in the sky. They'd be like the sand of the seashore. And that's what the bread and, and the water has to do with it. They'd be healthy. They'd fulfill the number of their days. 
Now, if you guys remember and have been with us, and if you don't, let me explain here. The people of the land grew up in a culture, they believed that it was good to try and manipulate the gods by offering even children to their gods. Uh, they believed that to do so would be to manipulate God in some sort of way to cause them, cause God to bring fertility upon the land, to give them the people, to give them great crops, to give them national wellness and prosperity. But here God says, no, do not bow down to them, those false gods. You don't even need to be drawn to that because I am the God of the covenant and I fulfill my promises. I will do it. And so bread, no problem. Water, no problem. Health, no problem. People, no problem. Days, long life, no problem. Because I fulfill my promises. I will do it. I'll make you fertile. No problem. Now, for those of us, as we read this chapter, this section, section, we need to be careful about how to apply this passage. Now, we could simply lift 25 and 26 out of its context, out of Exodus 23, out of the Old Testament, out of the covenant promises to a particular people, and say, hey, these, I'm going to make these my life verses. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from you, and none shall miscarry, be barren in your land. I will fulfill the numbers of the day. So that means I will never get sick if I just serve the Lord. Now, I'm never going to uh, I'm never gonna miscarry if I ever get married. In fact, I'm just going to have multiple, multiple children, and I, and I will live a long life, guaranteed. That would be to misread the Bible. That would not be wise to make these verses your verses. Because once again, these are particular promises to a particular people going to a particular land. If these promises were universal, that is every follower of God ought to make these promises our promises, then we would see these promises in the New Testament, wouldn't we? In fact, uh, but we don't see these types of promises in the, in the New Testament. In fact, we see Jesus, our Lord, saying, look, Christians, you follow me. I'm going to die because the world's going to hate me. And friends, you too, Jesus says. This suffering is for you too. We can look at the, we can look at the Apostle Paul. You know, did he suffer? Yes, he suffered and he obeyed God. He, he, he walked the path of Jesus Christ and he went on and got killed. So what then does that make? Does he say, oh, God is not faithful here. Exodus 23, 25 did not come uh, to fulfillment. No, he says God is good. He always fulfills his promises. But these promises are for Old Testament Israel. So we do not see these promises of health and wealth being spoken of in the New Testament. Uh, but they do speak to a spiritual wealth. They do speak to a spiritual health. And the New Testament says that we, in fact, receive spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, even in the midst of suffering. The main point here, you cannot make Exodus 23, 25 to 26, your personal life verses. That would not be wise. Instead, these are particular promises to a particular people. Now, as we read about everything that God will do to bring his people safely home, we are reminded of God's absolute sovereignty. And how his sovereignty is wielded towards his people for deliverance. And then wielded against his enemies for judgment. Just look at all the things the Lord will do if you just review this really briefly. In 20, I will send the angel. And he'll bring you to the place that I have prepared. And then you go on and and look at 25, right? I will take sickness away. I will fulfill. 27, I will send my terror. I will make all your enemies. 28, I will send hornets. 29, I will drive them out. 
Verse 30, I will drive them out again. Verse 31, I will set your border and the end there, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You see all that, the absolute sovereignty of God and bringing his people into the land. But, you know, if you have read Genesis, where it says, in the beginning God created, and if you know Exodus, you know that the Lord will do it. Just as he brought Israel out of Egypt by mighty works and miracles, so he would bring the Israelites safely into Canaan. But did you notice what the passage also emphasizes? What comes before and then after all the stuff that God will do? You look there at 24 and then 32. It's what the Lord's people are to do. And this brings us to point number two. God, God's, God requires covenant obedience. Now I mentioned 24 and 32 that speak of what the people are to do, but really the whole section begins with what the people are to do. Look there at verse 20. The Lord will send an angel before you to guard you. He says, my presence will go with you wherever you go. That's presence, right? I will be your covenant God and, and I will be with you. In verse 21 it says, listen to him. Don't reject him. Verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So here the emphasis is listen to him. Don't reject him because rejecting him means rejecting the covenant altogether. That's what he means there by he will not pardon your transgression if you absolutely reject him. And don't think that the people of Israel were saved by doing. They were not saved by doing. Remember, God had already entered into a covenant with the people. So you got the covenant of Abraham. And on top of that, you have the covenant with Moses, what we're reading about right here. So this is covenant relationship. It is never to be dry obedience. But God desires his people's hearts. He desires his people's hearts. This is covenant relationship. Remember, like a, similar to a wedding. Similar to a marriage where God would be their God and they would be his people, where his people would live in glad submission under his reign, under his rule, the only one and true God. Now, if you are married or even desire to be married, you know, we understand this. Do you want dry obligation? Or do you want heart? Do you want your spouse to delight in doing the things that, that uh, you know, people are to do, married people are to do? This is relationship. This relationship between the people and then the one true God. That's what undergirds all of the law. This is what undergirds the commands here to not pursue idolatry. Look there in the beginning. This is what it says there. In the beginning of all this, I will do this and that, that God says. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it shall surely be a snare to you. This is just covenant obedience. But you guys might have heard the, the language of totality there. Why such a drastic command to destroy the idols, don't let them live in the, be in the land, and then uh, just destroy them? Absolutely. Why such a drastic command? I think we hear, we, we understand this. Think again about relationships. Think about a couple that gets married and then eventually they move in together. Who leaves up pictures of their exes? What would you think? What would your advice to me be? If when me and Melanie got married, 
I put up pictures not only of me and Melly on our wedding day, of the, you know, the engagement pictures, the wedding day pictures, the rehearsal pictures, but also of me and my exes. They lined the walls of our house. They were across our mantle. They were even on our nightstands. Would you not tell me to put them away? If you were my father, would you not tell me to destroy them, get rid of them? Now, I've been in many houses uh, of many different types of people from different cultures, and not one husband or wife had pictures of their, you know, their husband and wife and their exes. I mean, we understand this. This is why there is such language of totality, destroy them, get rid of them. This is the dynamic at work here. When God saves a people, it is as if he helps us put away the pictures of our exes, lest our hearts be drawn to them. Our minds would think about them, lest our thoughts would be given over to what they supposedly could offer, a change of situation, freedom from difficulty, greater excitement, all the fun things of the past, supposedly saying that the grass is greener on the other side, and he does this all because he knows there in 32 and 33 that they would be snares to the people. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Don't get married to them, he says. They shall not dwell in your land. Don't even let them live there, these idols, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you, a portal to sin. You see how these commands are really loving commands? God knew how adulterous his people's hearts were. And yet he helps Israel along the way so that they would not trust in what is guaranteed to fail. Now, once again, if you were my father, my own mother, and you really care for my best interest, you would say, put them away, Jeremy. Because you know that those might be snares to the sinful heart. This command is logical. These commands are loving. And in fact, these commands are right and righteous because glory, uh, glory belongs only to God. God is zealous for his people, not in that he is jealous of his equals, he is zealous for his people because there are no equals. He alone is God. Besides him, there is no other. And so he wants his people, his bride, to love him and him alone, just as he loves them. Now, what about application for us? You know, are we called to go out and destroy the idols of Hacienda Heights and La Puente? Absolutely not. You don't see that going on in the New Testament. You can turn to the book, of, let's say, Corinthians, for example. They live in a pagan land, those Christians there. You don't see any commands to do that. You don't see any commands in the New Testament for people to take up arms and go storm a particular land like you see going on here in the Old Testament. It is a land of promise, no doubt, and it's a spiritual Jerusalem comes out of heaven, comes down to us. And God promises then to make things new there. He's going to do that, not us. Now sometimes, or I should say, uh, we do though need to be aware of what ensnares us. Right? What's here, God is careful. He says, look, you're going to go into this land. I promise it for you. Now, I don't want anything to ensnare you. Get rid of them. Destroy them. So then for us, we can apply that, certainly. So what is it that ensnares your own heart? Things that are, are portals to sin. Now, sometimes this is easy. You could say, like, okay, right, my ancestors, my family, maybe even my parents, they worship physical idols. That's easily identifiable. But sometimes identifying these snares can be really hard because the idols that we bow down to are not physical ones, but idols of the heart. 
And as one has said, as Tyler taught us a couple months ago, the heart often takes good things and makes them God things. Our hearts want to give good things a God status in our lives, and so we bow down to them. And you could, let's say, worship the idol of approval. You love helping people, not really because of your kindness towards them, but because you love praise. And so you, you live for maybe being in a loving relationship with somebody. You live for doing good, but really out of selfish motives. Or maybe you live for a prominent position that you've always dreamed about. That, that is living through the idol of approval. You can worship the idol of comfort. You live for pleasurable activities. Maybe you fear not having a healthy mind, a, a healthy body. You can live for the idol of security, where your life's goal is to make sure that you are financially secure. Because the way you grew up, no, you are not going to do that again. And so you worship the God of money. And you discard the worship of God who might be calling you to a life of being poor. Or perhaps you love security so much that your number one thing is to make sure that your marriage is secure. However it is that you might define these things. So uh, how do you go about discovering the heart idols that you yourself worship? How do you go about finding out what ensnares you? Well, here, I think it is wise to talk to the heart. Talk to the heart. We have to learn to question the motives of the heart. And a fantastic resource that helps us do that is one that's entitled, it's an article written by a man named Dave Pallison, who uh, is the director of the Christian Counseling Education Foundation. And this article here is called X-Ray Questions, Drawing Out the Whys and Wherefores of Human Behavior. There are 20 of these in the back table in the foyer there. If you want them and can read one-point font, this is for you. <laughs> and uh, if your eyes aren't so good, like mine, uh, let me know. I can send you an electronic copy or even uh, possibly print them out for you. So definitely grab this resource if you can. Talk to me. And he encourages, basically, the, in terms of identifying heart idols, to speak to the heart. Ask all sorts of questions. And then not only that, but we can go on and ask one another questions here in this church. And here, here's a question, okay? So just imagine when you're in the moment, when you're wrestling with sin, really battling against sin, when you are tempted, or even if you are despairing and hopeless. Or if you're in the moment of anger and rage. Or if you're in the moment of gripping anxiety and you can't seem to get yourself to think about anything other than the thing that you want to think about. You turn these questions like question number one, write this down. What is it you desire, crave, lust, and wish for? What is it you desire, crave, lust, and wish for? What desires uh, do you serve and obey? Right, it's a big question, umbrella question, that kind of opens up the, the doors, letting us see the desires of the flesh that may rule us in that very moment. Here's another, a second question. <clears throat> what are you banking your hopes on? Let's say, you know, you know, I got surgery and I meet up with David uh, regularly. We go to Panera. We ask each other some good questions. I benefit from the blood questions. And let's say he asks me, oh, okay, you know, Jeremy, I see you're discouraged about your surgery. You know, you can't move as well as you, you used to move. And, you know, that changes the way you interact with your kids. It changes the way you sleep. It changes all sorts of things. Uh, you know, if he sees that I'm despairing, he says, well, you know what, brother, what are you banking your hopes on? That's a good piercing question that I might not want to initially answer. But, man, is it a good question. I mean, imagine asking someone in despair that question. Their hopes have just been dashed. They didn't get into the school they wanted. They just found out perhaps that they had a miscarriage. <clears throat> that, if you're going to ask that question, make sure that you know that person well, you know, and that person loves you, and they trust you, 
and has opened up that door for you. Otherwise, that could be a pretty dangerous situation. But if you know and love someone and they know that you love them so securely, this is a wonderful question that can be asked in all sorts of instances. The goal is to see that see the rock that we have set our foot upon. And then we can help one another turn ourselves to the rock that is Jesus Christ, who is unshifting and steady. Question number three, what are you fearing? I like asking those, the questions in the opposite way here. And here you get to the opposite emotions, possibly. <clears throat> what is it that you are fearing? What do you tend to worry about? What do you not want? Let's say you're so anxious, so worried. You ask that question, well, what do you not want to happen? And then they start, and then, you know, we all can start listing the questions and answering things. And then we look at our answers and say, oh my goodness, we see that our sinful fears have inverted our cravings, as David Pallison says. You know, if I want to avoid something at all costs, loss of control, poverty, ill health, rejection, then I am, I am ruled by a lustful fear. Another question. What would make you feel rich, secure, prosperous? What would make you feel rich, secure, and proper? I mean, just imagine being being like, okay, when I was growing up, there was this show called uh, DuckTales, and the duck was so rich, he'd dive into his treasure and just swim around. Like, what? Imagine that. You know, if you could dive into anything, whatever that is, what would that be? What would make you feel rich? Not necessarily money. could be any number of things. What would make you feel secure and prosperous? What would make your life sing? It'll show you the object of your desires. Now, if you do not know yourself well, you're going to be putting up all these objections. You're going to be putting up lies. But here is a Christian community that knows forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Man, we can walk into these rooms, no matter how dark they are, and think like, oh my goodness, my heart is dark and ugly. But thank God for Jesus, because he can help me. He forgives me, and he helps me trust in him and him alone. Here's another question, question number five. What do you think you need? What are your felt needs? What are your felt needs? This question goes after what you are after, what you're trying to acquire. Pallison says, in most cases, your felt needs is street talk for idolatrous demands for love, for understanding, a sense of being in control, affirmation, and achievement. This street talk for what we lust after, what we're seeking to acquire, what we idolize. Question number six, where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? You come home from a long, hard day of work. What is it that one thing that you want to do when your responsibilities are nipping at your heels? What do you find refuge in? Your safety, security, escape, pleasure, etc. Another one. Who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to please? Whose opinion of you really counts? Let's say you're trying to get into a school. And you don't get in. Are you more discouraged because... Uh, you know, your mom and your dad tells you that you need to go there? If you don't get a job, if you don't pursue being a doctor, are you more discouraged because your parents uh, want you to be a doctor or because Jesus has somehow become discouraged in the process? Are you seeking to please Jesus Christ even in the midst of what you seek to do with your life? I mean, these are all excellent questions. I can go on and on. He gives you 35 questions. That you could ask of your very own self and your friend. Uh, but these are excellent questions that help us speak to the heart. And then when you identify what it is 
what good thing that you have turned into a God thing, then you need wisdom as to what to do with it. You know, for the idols, they just needed to destroy them. Don't let them even even sit on any post or in any house. <clears throat> they were just supposed to be uh, gotten rid of. Well, if you idolize relationships, you don't get rid of your wife. You don't get rid of your children. <clears throat> the solution then is to repent of your sins, give glory of giving glory to another, trusting in something other than God, loving something more than God, worshiping that thing more than you do Jesus Christ, and then you turn to the word of God to see how he thinks of that thing that you idolize. If you idolize sex and pleasure, what does God think about sex and pleasure? He says it's a good thing, but within these boundaries. If we idolize work, well, what does God say about rest? Well, he tells us without doubt, rest in Jesus Christ. So we go to the word of God for help. That's why, in fact, he's given it to us. That's why he's given us his law, his word, to help us know how we are to live as his people, living holy unto his name. So we have looked at, number one, God's determination to fulfill his promises. Number two, the fact that God actually requires obedience. And now number three, we turn to the sealing of the covenant. We turn to the sealing of the covenant. God calls Moses up on the mountain on 24. In fact, he calls all the leaders up to the mountain. And the ceremony was to be one of great sobriety as well as celebration. And what happens in the first 11 verses, which is our focus, uh, we see all the formalities. You know, we might miss the celebration in light of the formalities. But remember, just like wedding has, a wedding has formalities, so does God cutting a covenant with his people. The process there first in verse number one, we're just going to walk through these, the process really quickly here, or somewhat quickly. Verse number one, God calls Moses and all the leaders up to the mountain. And I guess you could sort of think about it as if there was a pastor at a wedding. You have the, the people getting married. You have the bridal party a little bit farther off. And then you have the people even farther off. Well, so, so the same is going on here. You have Moses, the mediator between man and God. He was called to draw near to the very presence of God. Verse number two, look there. The leaders were to stand far off. And then number three, the people were to stand at the bottom of the mountain. Second, we see that a vow is made. <clears throat> After Moses tells all that the God, God had said the Lord's words and the Lord's rules, the people make a vow. So when Moses speaks of the Lord's words and rule, he's speaking of the Ten Commandments in the Book of the Covenant. The words was referred to as the Ten Words in the Old Testament. They're not really referred to as uh, the, te- the commandments until the New Testament. <clears throat> so when he's talking about the words, he read the words to the people there. He's speaking about the Ten Commandments in 20, verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words. That's the Ten Commandments. And then we got the rules there. They're referring to the book of the covenant. And if you go to 21.1, it says, now these are the rules that you should set before them. So he's giving them God's law. So after Moses tells them the law of the Lord, look there in verse 3. They say, all that the Lord, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? That's their pledge. That's their vow. That's their formal, formal commitment. We hear God's requirement. We will do it. Third. Moses then formalized these things in a written document. It's a bit like uh, perhaps signing something. Uh, it's amazing then that what Moses writes down has come down to us in Exodus 20 to 23. The Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. What was going on on Mount Sinai we have right here. I mean that alone is pretty amazing. Fourth, the, the, the next thing there, he and Israel respond in worship. They worship the Lord of the covenant. He builds an altar. 
12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and then Moses has men sacrificed to the Lord. Now, all that we have seen up until this point has led up until this point. You look there in verse 6 of 24. And Moses took half of the blood, this is after the sacrifice, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Those of you who are not familiar with blood sacrifices, uh, you can think of, let's say, the modern equivalent, which kind of has faded out since people got um, rightly cautious about mixing people's blood together. But there was a modern equivalent where people would prick their fingers. You know, the little kids would prick their fingers and then they would touch their fingers to each other and their blood would be mixing with blood. Um, There, that's a blood covenant symbolized that there is a cost or we are bound in blood. You can think also in terms of uh, the cost of a covenant by like a pinky swear. Uh, The pinky swear, nowadays I don't see this too much, but if you make a pinky swear, the deal is if you break your promise, you're supposed to cut off your finger. Um... (laughs) It's good that that part has gone away. It just, it just signifies that uh, you know, there's a cost in making a covenant. So that you see the blood covenant with touching the fingers and things like that. I guess a modern equivalent is spitting in your hand and, and also uh, shaking or something like that. This is a bond in blood. That's the deal with the sacrifice. Blood was sprinkled on the altar, which symbolized the presence of God, and then the other half was sprinkled on the people. So you see the meaning. Covenant keeping went to the death. Keeping the covenant meant life. Breaking the covenant needed the spilling of blood to the death. Fifth thing. uh, Before he sprinkled the people with blood, verse 7 says Moses takes the written document, the book of the covenant, and then he reads it for the first time in the hearing of the people. For the first time ever, he reads God's law from from, uh, the, the thing that he's written it on, the document. And then six, the people make another vow. Verse seven, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And like a minister pronounces, a couple is now husband and wife. So Moses makes the official pronouncement there in 24, eight, look there. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Seventh, this is how it ends. Once again, Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. But this time, it is not just Moses who has fellowship with God. It is the 70 elders as well. This covenant-keeping ceremony ends with a fellowship meal between the Lord of heaven and his people. You can think of it as a reception dinner. It's underscoring the kindness of the Lord. In chapter 20, when the people hear God speak, they freak out and think God's going to come and judge them. Moses steps in and says, no, the Lord's not going to judge you. He's he's just telling you these things to make sure you don't sin against him, that you live holy unto his name. And here God reaffirms this, verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. This beautiful vision of God where below him is something like a picture of uh, the sky and God is so far above that. But yet he's eating and drinking with his people. Friends, what is central in this covenant ratification ceremony is the sacrifice. If you're taking notes, did you notice that there are three steps leading up to the sacrifice and then three steps after the sacrifice and the first three mirror the last three with the middle one being the sacrifice. What a delight it must have been for Israel to cut a covenant with the Lord Almighty again. The Lord sovereign over all. Actually, they're cutting a covenant for the first time. Uh, as a nation, the first, the first covenant with Abraham, 
it was just between God and Abraham, though it had implications for his people. But now it's the first time the people get to cut a covenant with God. What a delight it must have been. They had probably heard stories of their great ancestor Abraham and how God made a covenant with him to make him a, into a people and to give him a land. And here, hundreds of years later, there stands a multitude at Sinai, seeing the unfolding promises of God as God is guiding them, guarding them, protecting them, bringing them into the land. And on top of God's covenant with Abraham, he builds his covenant with Moses that spoke more specifically about God's requirements, about how his holy nation was to live. So they go from one man to a multitude. They go from uh, uh, people who are complaining and, and depressed in spirit, people who want to kill their leader, to now obeying their leader and pledging obedience to God. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, so that was then. What does that have to do with us? Well, as Christians, while we don't have blood on the altar sprinkling on the people but when we do become christians we are brought into the body of christ and we too enter into a covenant with god in fact it is called the new covenant it's a covenant that all the other ones pointed to and see god even knew right here that his people would not and could not fulfill his laws because of their own sinful hearts and so in the new covenant in jesus christ god promised to give us new hearts and Jeremiah says that he promised to write his law upon our hearts because we couldn't do it. And he would cause us to obey him and follow him. And praise God for that because we have the spirit of Christ living in us. He promised us free and final forgiveness by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't have bloody sacrifices today. God's Old Testament sacrifices, which we will read more about in Exodus, they were not designed to save. This is why the priests and the people sacrificed Day after day after day, the priests stood at their position day after day after day, year after year after year. And these sacrifices paved away for the final sacrifice, which we know that when John sees him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all. Turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And we see this. And here in the book of Hebrews, it's all about how the old covenant... The Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see here in Exodus chapter, 10, oh, sorry, Hebrews chapter ten, verse four. If you're sitting by somebody who doesn't know where it is, you can help them get there. So let's start there in verse three. You know what's the purposes of these Old Testament sacrifices? But in these sacrifices, the author says. There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then you go down to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 11 to 12. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which they're recommended to do, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? Is it because he's tired? No, it's because his work is entirely completed and sin is finally dealt with. The wrath is taken away by God's grace. So in Exodus, as Moses explains the sacrifice and says, Behold the blood of the covenant. All the way back in Exodus, we are clued into what he's going to do in Jesus Christ in sending his very own son to live a perfect life and to die on the cross bearing the wrath that his people deserved. 
As Jesus Christ then gathers his disciples and they celebrate the Passover meal, remembering the Exodus, God's sovereignty, his deliverance. Jesus, the true covenant mediator, explains his own sacrifice that was to come. And he does not say, behold, the blood of the covenant. He says, behold, my blood of the covenant. He says in Luke 22, verse 20, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The bond of blood has been fulfilled through the setting of Jesus Christ's blood. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that takes away sin, but only the shed blood of the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And going to the cross, God the Son goes till the death when we were the ones who should have. This is the great mystery of salvation. Though we are guilty and have earned for ourselves the curses of the covenant, He is the one who bears the punishment that we ourselves deserve. So friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, how wonderful is it that you don't have to face the punishment that all man actually deserves and to bear the wrath on your own. But Jesus Christ stands ready to be your covenant mediator. His blood has been shed, friend. And so he calls you even now to repent of your sins and to believe on him for free and final forgiveness. Salvation in Jesus Christ. For us as a New Testament church, as we are saved by the blood of Christ, it is true that obedience is still required, even though you know we're not earning our salvation. It doesn't add to our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. But God still calls us to pursue holiness. He still calls us to pursue covenant faithfulness in His power, in His Spirit. And while we do not have covenant ratification ceremonies like we do in Exodus, uh, but we do in fact have our own covenant ratification and affirmation ceremonies as we pledge ourselves in obedience to Jesus Christ. This is all part and parcel of the new covenant. The first is baptism, and the second is the Lord's Supper. If baptism is when somebody puts on the jersey of Christianity and and, uh, bears the name of God, so to speak, we are affiliated with Jesus Christ formally, the Lord's Supper is a bit like the ongoing meal of regular affirmation. So baptism, that's like the front door. Uh, The Lord's Supper is the ongoing family meal where we proclaim that we are one with Jesus Christ and Jesus has made himself one in regards to baptism. You know, regarding uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Christians are to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, which we're going to see in, uh, we're probably going to see this in October. And then I know that we'll probably have more baptisms at the end of November, beginning of December. So we get to see this. Uh, in baptism, it is the individual professing his or her faith. And then the church coming alongside and affirming the person's profession. The person says, yes, I am a child of God and I submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is and calls me to do. And as his spirit brings me cleansing, so symbolically I am cleansed in the water, washing of the water. Just as Jesus Christ went down into the grave, so we go down into the water. Just as Christ went up from the grave, so we come out of the water. And we say, I have died with Christ to our old lives. I have repented of my sin and now I live a new life as we come out of the water. I live it in Christ. And all that he has in baptism, we affirm, yes, that person is a Christian. So friends, if you need to be baptized, uh, know this. I will ask you two questions. 
I'll ask you, do you profess faith and repentance in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? It's like a vow, right? I'll ask you another question. And do you promise by God's grace to live a life worthy of the calling that he has given you? Basically saying, look, will you, by God's grace again, of course we're going to fail, so we say this by grace, do we seek to honor God in thought, word, and deed for the fame of his great name? That's the sub- substance of those questions there. These are vows. Just as a bridal party, or sorry, uh, yeah, just as a bridal party stands behind the bride and the groom in their vows, so the church comes alongside and joyfully stands behind the person getting baptized, witnessing your vows, supporting you in them, praying for you as you make them. So if you have not been baptized as a believer and you know you are a Christian, then, then come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more about baptism. Christ's first command to his people after he tells them to repent and believe is, in fact, to be baptized course this does not save you doesn't add to your salvation but it is an expression of your commitment to follow him it's like putting on that ring and so now if i let's say i go to the gym and someone might be speaking to me in a way that might make my wife uncomfortable and me uncomfortable i stand like this say i have this ring or maybe i have to tell them more specifically i have this ring uh, and it's a symbol of my vow so it is with baptism the second is the lord's supper covenant affirmation this is symbolic of jesus christ's sacrifice too but where the sacrifices in the old testament look forward to christ's sacrifice the lord's supper looks back on christ's sacrifice christ says about the lord's supper he says do this in remembrance of me and every time we celebrate the lord's supper which we did last week we proclaim all that the lord has won the forgiveness he has given the reconciliation he has made the justification he's declared the adoption he has already signed all that he has won through his torn body and spilled blood, he has won for us. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do this as a body, the body of Jesus Christ. And before we take the Lord's Supper, we pull out our church covenant, which is right there in your bulletin. That's why I included that in there. And here uh, we reaffirm our church covenant with one another. And so we ask those of you, if you are a, if you are a member of First Baptist Church, you know, stand up please and let's reaffirm this. Now, I know if you're visiting with us, it might make you feel a little bit awkward because you're like, everybody's standing and I'm not standing. We don't intend to make you feel awkward, but we just want to take the commandments of Jesus Christ seriously in terms of the relationship that we need to have with one another. And these are just biblical summary. I mean, if you want to see, you can go ahead and see, okay, we'll walk in brotherly love. Well, where does that say that in the Bible? So we just want to take these, these commands of Jesus Christ upon us and say, yes, we will do these things most importantly, by the grace of God. Will we fail? Yes, at times we will. And there we trust in the Lord's forgiveness and His grace to bring us through. This is why we reaffirm our church covenant, our promises, our vows, our oaths before one another, and most importantly, before the Lord God who has purchased salvation for us, for all who repent and believe through His shed blood. In these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is central. Just as sacrifice was central in the Mosaic Covenant. Just as sacrifice was central in the Abrahamic covenant. And so as we baptize as a church and eat the Lord's Supper as a church, we are to do them with a certain soberness and in celebration of the wonderful things that Jesus Christ has done for sinners. In conclusion, you know, in relation to Exodus 23, 24, and all of these details, God's determined, God is determined to fulfill his promises. We see also that God requires covenant obedience, and then we see him sealing the covenant. 
And it's not just about details, even though we read about the process and everything like that. You know, no wedding, just as no wedding ceremony should be just about details, so no covenant in Scripture is just about details. It's about relationship. It's about God, the covenant God, who walks with His people, delivering them every single step of the way, and even teaching them through the law that He knows that His people can't fulfill to depend on grace. His grace, ultimately, in the cross. Even though this covenant does involve law, it is an expression of God's covenant relationship with His people, and so are the commands of the new covenant. This is Christianity, relationship. Thank God it is never about cold law, where God is only judge. The Christianity of the Bible holds out a God who is judge and a God who is loving Father. Christianity that holds out that He is God who is the lawmaker and a God who loves sinners and a Savior of all who turn and believe. Thank God that he is such a God who saves a people and takes them to be his bride, despite our very own sinfulness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who seals your covenants with your very own blood. We thank you, Lord, that you bear even the covenant curses upon yourself. Lord Jesus, we know that you do not flinch from these things, but you have joyfully entered into covenant with a sinful people. And that speaks volumes of your grace and your mercy and your steadfast love. Lord, we thank you, too, that you are so determined to fulfill your covenant to see your people live holy unto your name, that we as a New Testament church have your spirit as you have poured out the Spirit of Jesus Christ to help us live like Christ and transform us into the very image of Christ. Father, we pray that you would protect our hearts from going about the New Testament commands, the Old Testament commands, uh, in cold obedience. But Lord, we pray that we would be like children of yours who delight underneath your perfect parenthood, parenting, your perfect love, your kindness, even your discipline. Father, we pray that you would help us be convinced that you have our good in mind, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of walking, what might seem to be like a difficult path to the land that you have prepared for us, the great inheritance that is heaven, and the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.